This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Casey Hunt, in for Jake Tapper. We do start today with our politics lead. Moments ago, Attorney General Merrick Garland spoke about the landmark verdict in the Oath Keepers trial, calling the decision a significant victory for the American people. His remarks come after a jury found the founder of the far-right Oath Keepers and his deputy guilty of seditious conspiracy for their role in the Capitol insurrection. Those two and three others were also found guilty of obstructing an official proceeding, a charge that carries up to 20 years in prison. As the verdict of this case makes clear, the department will work tirelessly to hold accountable those responsible for crimes related to the attack on our democracy on January 6, 2021. Let's get straight to CNN senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed. Uh, Paula, what was your biggest takeaway from the attorney general's remarks today? Okay, so here we see the attorney general seizing the spotlight and really taking a victory lap for these two significant, but also very unique victories for the Justice Department over the past 24 hours. The first being those convictions on seditious conspiracy, a significant victory for these prosecutors. These have been the most serious charges filed in the over 900 cases brought related to January 6th. Here, a jury found that this violence was not spontaneous, but the product of an organized conspiracy. This is really expected to embolden prosecutors as they continue to work on cases already in the pipeline and then as they contemplate other cases to potentially bring. The attorney general also wanted to highlight the Justice Department's work in Jackson, Mississippi, to try to protect and defend safe drinking water there. He said this is really important civil rights work. And he noted this is the kind of thing that they're working on every day that does not get that much attention. In case I can tell you, over the past decade or so of covering the Justice Department, they do get frustrated that a lot of times what gets the most attention are these high-profile political investigations, be it Hillary's emails, Mueller, the current investigations into former President Trump. So he even took the opportunity to take off some of the other things that the Justice Department is working on, including uh, elder fraud, crimes against children, uh, terrorism. But of course, Casey, he is going to get some questions, as he, he would expect, on some of these high-profile investigations, including his recent appointment of special counsel Jack Smith. He was asked if he had met with with Smith and what was going on with that investigation. And he didn't say too much, but he did confirm that he had met with Smith. He said that he's working with the team. He noted that Smith has already gotten his work underway, uh, approving some of the arguments the prosecutors made last week in Atlanta before a court of appeals. So it's a great opportunity for the attorney general to highlight some of the day to day, the bread and butter work they do. And also a great opportunity for, for reporters to ask him some questions about the other work they're doing. Good opportunity for questions, although the answers uh, were brief and not terribly (laughs) illuminating. But Paul Reed, thanks very much for that report. Let's bring in now CNN's Evan Perez. He was in the room for Attorney General Garland's press conference. And Evan, you asked him about the department's coordination with the January 6th committee. What did we learn? Well, Casey, this has been a a point of contention between uh, the January 6th committee and uh, the Justice Department, which has been asking for access to all of the evidence they want access, especially to the transcripts of some of the witness uh, testimony that the committee has received. 
because, you know, obviously, if you've got to put people on trial, they have to be able to know what those people said to the committee that could play a role in discovery issues and pe people being put on trial. The attorney general uh, said that the committee, that, that the, the Justice Department is still pursuing access to all evidence, to all of the transcripts from the committee. He would not say what the process or what the progress is in those negotiations. We know Casey, that the committee has been hesitant to turn over everything. They say it belongs to the committee, that in some cases they're going to share some things with the Justice Department, uh, but it appears that that is still a process that is ongoing. It is still clearly not a resolved issue. And of course, Casey, you know that the committee has probably just a few more weeks uh, to go before they cease to exist. We'll see whether the, the Justice Department can get those uh, transcripts. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very interesting question, an important one that you asked. Evan Perez, thanks very much for that. Yeah. And speaking of the January 6th committee, they are expected to meet this Friday to discuss whether to make criminal referrals to the Justice Department over the insurrection. And that referral list could include Donald Trump. I also want to bring in CNN's Caitlin Polans. Caitlin, does the Justice Department, do they pick up, pick up now where the committee leaves off once they're disbanded? Or what's next for this? Casey, that's what the committee is certainly going to hope for. So this key meeting that's going to be happening on Friday, it's a subcommittee of the House Select Committee. And what they're going to be talking about is making possible criminal referrals to the Justice Department. So they're going to assess all of the evidence that they gathered and decide whether they think uh, that they want, whether they want to ask the attorney general to bring charges against people. That could be uh, them asking whether uh, asking there to be charges brought against Donald Trump for the large amount of evidence that they collected over his interest in overturning the election result. They have been very clear that they think there would be a crime there. Uh, that's something the Justice Department may already be looking at, and they don't actually need the House to speak up and ask for an investigation into that. But there are other things that may have occurred during this House Select Committee investigation, Casey, that really could prompt the Justice Department to get involved and look deeper. Things like possible obstruction, possible perjury, possible witness tampering. So we're going to have to wait and see exactly what the committee does. It's all par part of their wind-down phase, writing the report. They wrapped up their very last interview today. And then those criminal referrals, there is going to still be an outstanding question of whether the committee makes a move there and says something publicly to toss it over to the Justice Department as this Congress ends. Really high stakes few weeks. Uh, Caitlin, you've also learned that House Democrats now have Donald Trump's tax returns? They do indeed. We just got confirmation a few minutes ago from the Treasury Department that the Treasury Department complied with a court order last week. Uh, the Supreme Court basically said, no, we're not going to step in. We are going to agree with other courts that all sided with House Democrats. House Democrats have been trying for years now, Casey, to get access to Trump financial details in many different ways. By my count, there's been maybe six different or more different ways that they've tried. This one was a very clean request that the House Ways and Means Committee made in 2019. What they asked for was uh, six years of Trump's tax returns, including the years he served as president. His personal returns also returns around eight of his different business entities. Uh, and the courts, Trump was trying in court to block this. The courts ultimately all said, no, the House has this power. And those tax returns did go from the IRS to the House Ways and Means Committee. We're going to have to watch and see what the House Ways and Means Committee does next.
A fascinating turn of events here. The last day of November 2022, after this was asked for in 2019, and we got another presidential campaign underway. Caitlin Polens, thanks very much for that. Let's discuss this all uh, with our August panel. And uh, Tom Dupree, let me start with you. I mean, you just heard uh, the, the Justice Department, the Attorney General, talking about how they did. They want all of this information, all the transcripts that this committee has been gathering for months and months and months. Um, what is your understanding for why there is a, a, a challenge here and why is co- the coordination so important? Well, I think the big question is what happens to all the material that the January 6th committee has collected once it is dissolved, as we all assume it will, in the months ahead. They have been pounding the pavement for months. They've been gathering documents, talking to witnesses. They're going to produce a report. But I think the question is, is when they pass this baton to the Justice Department, what happens then? I suspect that today's or yesterday's verdict, I think, is very significant in terms of what happens next. I think it sends a signal to law enforcement and the Justice Department specifically that it is possible to convict the leaders of the January six attack on one of the most serious charges in the United States code, namely seditious conspiracy against the United States. Andrew McKay, what's your sense? Of, of, do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I totally agree. To some degree, the referral will be uh, theatrical more than anything else, right? The DOJ is not uh, required to follow up on any referral that might be given uh, to them. It's an opportunity, though, for the committee to kind of put an exclamation point at the end of this process, declaring exactly how they feel, specifically that they think people engaged in criminal conduct. However, If they turn over a referral to DOJ, I think it's going to make it that much harder for them to resist giving the evidence and the transcripts as well. You can't say, I want you to investigate and prosecute these people, but I'm not going to share the evidence I have with you. You can't see why we think that. Exactly. Right. So let me ask you about what we saw in the Oath Keepers uh, trial. Do you think the events of the last 24 hours have changed the calculation for the Justice Department in terms of of whether or not to prosecute the former president since they were able to secure this conviction? Yeah, no question. In a couple of ways. This, uh, the comments about the Oath Keeper verdict by the AG is a little bit more than just a chest-pounding session. He is sending a message to the attorneys who are currently representing the other Oath Keepers whose trial is coming up and the Proud Boys and whoever else might be in the wings later that we can do this, we can put on these complicated, high-stakes political cases and get verdicts against you. So rethink whether or not you want to cooperate with us now, provide evidence, and seek an easier path. Um, I think that's a... That's very interesting. And it's a very loud message to those folks who were in leadership positions who may be being looked at for their role in organizing and instigating the attack. And first among those is, of course, the former president. And, and, and I, I agree with that. I think yesterday's verdict is going to be a bellwether for everything that it follows. The Oath Keepers' upcoming trial, the Proud Boys' upcoming trial. At the same time, I think one thing that will not escape the notice of the Justice Department is that this jury did acquit the majority of defendants on the seditious conspiracy charges. And so I think what that is going to tell the Justice Department is they have to make sure they have evidence with everyone they prosecute for seditious conspiracy that shows the conspiracy extends to those people. Just because you're involved in something isn't necessarily right. going to be enough to convict. The jury's going to look at the evidence that you have. You better prove it. Exactly yeah. right. Abby, what's your take on um, what Director McCabe is saying here in terms of sending a message to people like potentially the former president here? And how do you think politics and the political situation weighs on the attorney general? I definitely think Garland is very attuned to the politics of the situation. And I think that that's why um, this these convictions actually help him in a, in a way that he wants to be helped. I mean, it gives him a little bit more backing to say, okay, we can proceed forward. But this issue of cooperation, I think, is really important. One of the, the difficulties of um, this environment, especially in, 
frankly, the, the Trump environment, is that a lot of people around Trump have not felt compelled to cooperate with congressional investigations, with special counsel investigations, and all kinds of um, other uh, in- investigations for, for a number of different reasons. They stall. Uh, they assume that uh, that convictions are not coming. And I think that this idea that now there's a prospect of convictions on the table, I think it does a lot to change people's calculus. And then on top of that, I mean, there's always the prospect of what is coming. I mean, the the real issue here is that this is perhaps not over and that it's not going to be the last time we see another attempt to potentially uh, subvert another election. And it it sends a strong message to those people to, frankly, not try it again. Yeah, no, it's a really important point, Shan. Well, this was a must-win conviction for the Justice Department. I mean, if they'd gotten a bunch of acquittals here, it would have been disastrous for them. And it does send a message uh, to the other people. But there's also a lot of lessons to be learned from the acquittals. And it's not so much, in my opinion, where they have the evidence. I mean, they've had the evidence for a while. I think DLJ is going to proceed with their charging decisions no matter what this verdict was. But from a trial aspect, it can teach them a lot about how to present that evidence. I think it's noteworthy that the, all of them were convicted for the obstruction of the official proceeding. To me, that says that's a little bit of an easier concept to grasp for the jury. Seditious conspiracy may sound very overwhelming, like it's a real coup that might succeed. They need, in the future, to translate that into much more pragmatic step-by-step points of this is seditious conspiracy if you do X, Y, and Z. It doesn't have to look like something in the movies where there are a bunch of armies advancing on the Capitol. I think that's a lesson that the trial-level operational people are going to gather from this. I think that's absolutely right. And I think there, it's entirely possible that their uh, post-mortem of the verdict of the, of the convictions and the acquittals will point them to realizing that the, they saved seditious conspiracy for the two people with the highest level of culpability here, and also the two people whose conversations and communications prior to January 6th laid out the clearest picture of pre-planning, right. of where their minds were in the weeks leading up to it. Um, that is particularly relevant if you are someone who is now alleged to have been involved in the planning of January 6th, and that includes not just the former president, but people like uh, John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani and others City who were Hall's in and around the White House at that questions time. Questions about that, that was, now, that's a very good point. That was one of the things that jumped out at me just looking at the evidence come in is that, you know, if you must engage in seditious conspiracy, don't text about it. Right. Don't put your intentions <laughs> in a text but message and say, here's what I'm going to do. Don't don't I mean, to be the person breaking the glass. I think that that's a really important point, too. I mean, there are yeah. so many people who were involved in this who maybe they didn't break down the doors these convictions really say there are consequences for that. Well, and that's the, that's the thing that really interests me in terms of the former president as well, because, you know, as you creep towards this seditious conspiracy question, I mean, the, the, the one person, obviously, Stuart Rhodes, did not break the glass. He exactly. specifically did not go in there and try to obstruct that official proceeding, but he did uh, conspire, um, the jury found. Let me ask you um, briefly before we go, uh, Shan, what's your, we just learned that they're finally going to get Trump's tax returns at the Ways and Means Committee. Now, granted, Democrats are going to lose control of the committee in like four weeks. <laughs> so uh, how big of a deal is this at this stage? Well, the stage part can't speak to <laughs> But from an evidentiary standpoint, it's a big deal. I mean, this allows them to connect a lot of dots. I mean, just one small area. He's listed these 500 plus LLCs that he puts all his businesses into. This can tell you how those LLCs are actually working. Um, Are there foreign assets there? How does he treat that income from the LLCs? Those are all potential bases for criminal charges. So it gives you a lot of evidence. What they'll do with it in this time frame, not sure. Who knows? And, of course, there's no guarantee that the public will 
have a chance to see them. All right, all of you, thank you so much for being here to help us uh, handle this breaking news today. Up next, the House passes a deal to avoid a rail strike that would derail the nation's economy. Up next is the Senate and the new information that we're learning about how soon they might take up the bill. Then the world's largest volcano erupting, and now lava is inching closer to a major highway. Stick around. A deal to avert an impending rail strike is on the way to the Senate after the House voted to pass an agreement brokered by President Biden earlier this year that would keep rail companies and employees working. CNN's Phil Mattingly is at the White House with what's next for the agreement and why eight Democrats voted against it. The joint resolution is passed. A bipartisan vote that marked a critical step in a furious effort to prevent economic disaster. Today, we are here to safeguard the financial security of America's families, to protect American economy as it continues to recover, and avert a devastating nationwide rail shutdown. For President Biden, a crucial win in the behind-the-scenes effort to avert rail worker strikes that could cripple U.S. commerce. The White House locking in 79 Republicans in support of the bill a window into a complex problem cutting across political and ideological lines. The middle class built America, and unions built the middle class. One that has pitted the White House and Democratic leaders against their close allies in the labor movement. Now we're at a place where the president has been very clear that we have to avert a rail shutdown, and he's asking Congress to act. And major business groups lining up behind the administration in support. The fear of economic collapse trumping long-standing allegiances after several unions rejected a deal the White House helped drive in September, primarily due to the agreement's omission of paid sick leave. Now it's going to come here to the Senate. White House officials now keenly aware their most acute challenge lies ahead. Do we stand with workers in the rail industry and say, yes, you are right. Working conditions are horrendous. We cannot continue a process by which you have zero paid sick leave. The House voting to pass a separate bill to include paid sick leave as Senator Bernie Sanders pledged his own effort in a fiery floor speech. Biden set to dispatch his top two cabinet officials, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, to meet behind closed doors with Senate Democrats on Thursday. A meeting White House officials say will focus on an agreement they say includes clear wins for union workers including the largest pay increases in more than five decades. Democratic sources say they are cautiously optimistic Biden will get the votes with Republican agreement on moving forward. Leader McConnell and I both want to pass it quickly. We understand the time deadlines and we'll be working together to figure out the best way to get it done quickly. But they also acknowledge the clock is ticking toward a December 9th deadline for action. Time is of the essence. We must act now. And Casey, that optimism that this will get over the finish line in the Senate is starting to grow to some degree as to when that final vote may actually happen. What amendments, if any, will be in line here? That is very much a subject of internal debate between Republicans and Democrats. President Biden and his top officials have made clear on Capitol Hill in their phone calls and meetings they want this done by Saturday at the absolute latest. Right now, senators in a process, Casey, you know better than most, very much trying to figure out when exactly they can get this done, how they can get this done. Doesn't seem a question right now if they're going to get it done, Casey. It's quite a tightrope. Phil Mattingly, thanks very much for that report. 
An historic day on Capitol Hill with House Democrats electing Hakeem Jeffries as head of the Democratic caucus. Jeffries will be the first black person to lead a major party in a chamber of Congress. CNN chief congressional correspondent Manu Raju joins me now. Manu, what is the reaction on the Hill to this vote today? Well, it has been expected in a smooth transition in the aftermath of Nancy Pelosi announcing just a couple of weeks ago that she would step aside as the leader of the Democratic caucus, a caucus that she has dominated for the past two decades. Hakeem Jeffries himself has been a member of the Democratic leadership for the past several years, one who was viewed as the likely next Democratic leader, assuming some of the other people who were under Nancy Pelosi decided to step aside. And that's what they decided to do. Pelosi's number two, Steny Hoyer, opted not to run for the top Democratic position in the new Congress, neither did Jim Clyburn, who is currently the number three. Instead, that paved the way for a brand new leadership team marking a new generation of leaders, a younger crop of leaders. Under Hakeem Jeffries will be the number two, Catherine Clark of Massachusetts, and followed by her will be Pete Aguilar as the number three. Now, there are still some leadership fights that will happen beneath them, but nevertheless, the top three members have been sorted out, and as Jeffries said today, that he believes that they are simply temporarily relinquishing the majority to the House Republican who are expected to have a narrow majority in the new Congress, a sign here that Jeffries and his new Democratic leadership team sees their chances of getting back into the majority as pretty strong headed into 2024. And undoubtedly, that will be their focus in the two years ahead. It is pretty remarkable just to see the pictures of these three new leaders after however many years you and I have both been covering the the old three. Uh, Pretty stark there. Um, Let's talk for a second about the Republicans because um, Kevin McCarthy is still pretty much in the fight of his life to become Speaker of the House in January. What's the latest? Where do things stand with him? He is fighting vote by vote, trying to get to what the magic number, which is 218 votes. And he doesn't have much room for error because the Republicans are expected to have 222 votes in the new Congress. And that means that he can only lose four at most in order to reach that threshold, since all other Democrats are expected to vote for Jeffries or certainly not vote for McCarthy. And already a handful of the more conservative members of the Republican conference have indicated that they plan to vote no. Some of them have suggested an openness to negotiate, and that's what McCarthy team hopes ultimately will convince them to support him for pointing to his efforts to uh, help Republicans retake the majority and also some of the discussions about some possible rules changes to allow them more power over the leadership to give the rank and file more influence. And Casey, in a sign of McCarthy's effort to try to appease the right to show that he's not going to bow down to the Biden administration or to Democrats, he sent a letter today to the January 6th committee saying that they should preserve all records as he as they are suggesting they may turn the tables and investigate the January 6th committee that is now investigating the insurrection that happened in the Capitol in 2021, a sign of his focus, assuming he becomes speaker. Casey. Wow. Okay. Manu Raju, <laughs> thanks very much for that. You got your work cut out for you the next couple of years mm-hmm. up there. Coming up next, the family of a teenager lured online by an adult man posing as a teen has a warning for other parents after the deadly deception shattered their lives. Topping our world lead, an envelope addressed to the Ukrainian ambassador in Spain exploded at the embassy in Madrid today. Officials say officials there say an employee has minor injuries after handling the letter. While police investigate who sent it, Ukrainian officials have stepped up security at all their embassies. Back in Ukraine, despite pressure on the power grid because of relentless Russian strikes, Kiev's mayor insists Putin will not be allowed to steal holiday joy. 
Unlike this tree, which was connected to the city's electric grid in this picture taken several years ago, this year's tree will be powered by a generator. So the, quote, tree of invincibility in downtown Kyiv will never go dark, and it'll include a nearby charging point so people can power up their phones. Very convenient. Now, in Russia, even as Putin falters with his so-called special military operation in Ukraine, his government is keeping an almost obsessive focus on limiting rights for the LGBTQ community in Russia. CNN's Fred Pleitkin is in Moscow, where Russia's upper house of parliament unanimously voted to criminalize what it describes as propaganda about LGBTQ issues. For years, being gay has been extremely tough in Russia. Now it's about to get even harder. After Russian parliament passed what it calls the LGBT propaganda law, claiming in part it's a defense against U.S. influence. I cannot put it any other way. The United States of America has become the global center of this sodomy. Let them live there. Do not touch us. Anti-gay tirades are often embedded into coverage of what Russia calls its special military operation in Ukraine on state TV, making the war out to be part of a larger battle of Russia against the West and its alleged moral decay. Yaroslav Rasputin, a gay rights activist in Moscow, says he feels singled out. This is the information noise that we're becoming victims of. We're being used as scapegoats to distract attention and redirect the hatred of the electorate that supports Putin and the war. Russian President Vladimir Putin often portrays himself as the savior of traditional family values, even equating Western LGBTQ freedoms to devil worshipping. Such a total denial of a human being, a rejection of faith and traditional values, suppression of freedom begins to look like a perverted religion, outright Satanism. The new law bans praise of what the government considers non-traditional sexual relationships or otherwise suggesting those relationships are, quote, normal. But LGBTQ activist Renat Davlet Gildiev, who has fled the country, says the law will essentially make it illegal to be openly gay in Russia. The only text that I can now show publicly according to the law in Russia, in my social network, on the street, in a newspaper or in a movie, is gays are outlawed, gays are bad and lesbians should be in jail. Not a single Russian legislator voted against the bill. Punishment includes fines up to thousands of dollars for individuals. Foreigners could be jailed for up to 15 days and deported. Vladimir Komov heads an organization providing legal aid to the LGBTQ community, and he fears the lawyers might soon be targeted as well with significant fines for legal entities. There are fears among lawyers that if they defend political cases like rallies or alleged gay propaganda, this may be turned against them in the future. But activists and lawyers fear that even more of Russia's LGBTQ community will come to the conclusion that their only way to live openly will be to flee the country. 
And Casey, at a meeting last week, Vladimir Putin said he believes that Russia for too long has been living by the rules of others. He's also made clear that he believes that the LGBT community is something that is essentially incompatible with Russian values. Vladimir Putin is, of course, the final stage. He has to sign this law for it to take effect. There's absolutely no doubt he's going to do that. And I can tell you it's already sending chills through what's left of the LGBT community here in this country, Casey. I'm sure. Fred Plaikin in Moscow, thanks very much for that report. Let's turn now to our world lead. A tea party in Boston, this time hopefully no intentional spills. British royals William and Kate, formerly known as the Prince and Princess of Wales, are stateside today to present an award for William's foundation, Earthshot, which awards innovators fighting the climate crisis. CNN's royal correspondent, Max Foster, is in Boston. Uh, Max, uh, welcome to the U.S. of A. This is their first visit to the U.S., in eight years. Uh, what are they hoping to accomplish? Well, they have arrived in Boston and they are heading this way and they're going to give a speech or Prince William, the Prince of Wales as he is now, will give a speech behind me in the rain. All the umbrellas are out here. Um, this is all about a build up to Friday, which is the Earthshot Prize. It's all about finding solutions to climate change and accelerating those solutions. So the winners receive million dollar prizes. He sees it as his Super Bowl. They see it really as the, uh, you know, the biggest prize there is going in climate change. So it's all about building up to that. And um, uh, Caroline Kennedy will be here. She'll be supporting him throughout the next three days. There'll be a series of events building up to that. Uh, but there are pretty big crowds here, I have to say. Most of them telling me they're more excited about seeing Kate than William. So there's been a bit of a change. But it's going to be interesting to see uh, how they treat these new roles. It's the first time they come here as a prince and princess of Wales. And there's so much legacy, isn't there, with those titles through Diana and Charles? I suppose I'm supposed to stay unbiased, but I would personally be very excited to see Kate, uh, the Princess Catherine. Uh, but I, this is a bit overshadowed because we are hearing that a Buckingham Palace staffer has resigned after apparently asking a guest where she was from and then refusing to believe the guest, who was a black woman, and refusing to believe that she was of British nationality. Um, have any of the royals responded to this? Well, this guest has tweeted a um, transcript of the conversation. It's horrific reading. This age just repeatedly asks her where she's from, where her people are from, and, um, you know, when did she arrive here in the UK? And this was a British national. It's very difficult. The palace responded very quickly to say that they were investigating and that she stepped down straight away. Also, uh, Prince William's spokesperson saying there's no place for racism in society and this was the right thing to do, to step down immediately. So they've tried to deal with it very quickly. But of course, it speaks to all of these allegations of racism within the palace that we've heard before. And it, it doesn't help and it does overshadow things a bit here. It does. All right, Max Foster with the Royals in Boston. Thanks very much for that report. We appreciate it. Coming up next, a warning for parents from the aunt of a teen caught in a horrific catfishing scheme that ended with her grandparents and her mother dead. The family of a teenager who was catfished online speaking out today, sending a warning to other parents to watch and educate your teenagers. It comes after police say a 28-year-old former Virginia state trooper met a teen online and pretended to be a fellow teenager. Authorities say he then traveled to her home in Riverside, California, killed her grandparents and her mother, and then fled the scene with the teenager. The suspect later died in a shootout with police. The teenager was physically unharmed. Today, the aunt, her aunt is speaking out. 
please, parents, guardians, when you are talking to your children about the dangers of their online actions, please use us as a reference. Tell our story to help your parenting. Just devastating. The teen victim is in protective custody and receiving medical treatment. I'd like to bring in CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller. John, thanks so much for being with us. This is absolutely terrifying to parents across the country. I mean, what are some tips that you have that you think parents could use to prevent their teenager from being catfished online? Well, uh, first, there's kind of too many to list, but I would say to parents, Go to IC3 at the FBI, the IC3 website. Go to NICMIC, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They have extensive menus of trip tips for online safety for different age groups. But let's get down to business. Uh, the most vulnerable are teenagers. When you look at kidnappings by non-family members, 80% of them aren't little kids who are 5 or 7 years old. They're kids from 12 to 17. So... Those years are particularly vulnerable. It requires really being engaged with your kids at a time when trust is always a challenge. Teenagers don't want you mucking through their business. Um, I think what we've gone through in my house is if we give you the phone and we're paying the bill, we get the password. If we don't get the passwords, then you don't get the phone. Um, and, you know, occasionally we'll go through it with them. The, the last piece of that is just having access to the device doesn't give you access to their world. These platforms and apps have their own entranceways and their own passwords. So at that point, you really have to engage with them and tell them what to look out for. It's just so scary. Um, let's turn now also to another incredibly uh, difficult story, which is the unsolved murders in Idaho. It's been more than two weeks since those four college students were stabbed to death in their off-campus house, and police have still not identified a clear suspect. They haven't found a murder weapon. Investigators initially said there was no threat to the community, but then they had to backtrack. What are you thinking at this stage as you watch this investigation unfold? I am thinking that you're looking at a complex, but not a typical murder investigation, which is you go into it with a, maybe a strong suspect and that suspect watches, washes out. You know, as we get into three weeks though, we're entering a critical period because the crime scene evidence is coming back from the lab, the medical examiner, the coroner there is coming up with additional information. So what does that mean? That means that they've gotten the DNA from all the victims. They've run that. They've matched that to blood and physical evidence there. Now they've gotten the DNA from the two surviving victims and those who were known to visit the apartment. So what they're looking for is an unknown sample of DNA that they can match to a, to a subject. This is around the time when they would start to have those things. At the same time, talking to people who are working on this case and around this case, uh, they have some very encouraging leads. I think they have some people that they're looking at that they're very interested in, but I've been in these cases. And today's prime suspect can be tomorrow's back burner and a new individual can emerge and things can develop very quickly or it can drag on. This is a complicated and difficult business. It sure is. All right, John Miller, thanks very much. Uh, as always, sir, we really appreciate your time. Thanks. Up next, the U.S. victory over Iran at the World Cup wasn't just a win for the men's team. It also means a huge payday for the U.S. women's soccer team. We'll explain why. Coming up next. It turns out 
Winning pays off, and it's not just the U.S. men's national team making bank after their victory yesterday. The U.S. women's national team earned at least $6.5 million thanks to a landmark equal pay agreement that was forged earlier this year. Joining me live from Doha, Qatar, is CNN's Don Riddell. Don, how significant is this? This is hugely significant. It is an extraordinary story, Casey, that the U.S. women's team has made that much money without kicking a ball. But it goes all the way back uh, to the stand they took to say, look, we need and we deserve to be paid more money. So they struck a deal with the men's team. The men's team and the women's team agreed to basically share whatever they make when they perform in the World Cup. Famously, the women do much better in World Cup tournaments than the men, but the men's World Cup is worth so much more money. So this was incredible. Last night we saw the United States men's team beating Iran with that one goal, that Christian Pulisic goal. That was the difference between the teams. If it wasn't for that goal, the U.S. team would be out. And because of that goal, the women's team stands to gain six and a half million dollars because getting to the uh, knockout round of this tournament is worth 13 million. And now it's half each way. Just to give you some context here, that six and a half million dollars is more than the American women earned for winning both the 2015 and 2019 tournaments. And of course, if the US team goes even further, if they can beat the Netherlands uh, on the weekend, it's just going to get better and better for all of them. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you underscored that because to get six million dollars collectively for winning, completely winning the whole thing, for the women, it's just such a discrepancy between what the men got just for moving ahead. Right. Um, let's, let me ask you about another historic moment in the men's uh, World Cup. There's tomorrow's match between Costa Rica and Germany, and all the referees are going to be female? Tell us more about that. Yeah, this is another historic moment. Stephanie Frappard is a 38-year-old French referee. She's very famous within the game. She's refereed some uh, big European games before. She's refereed men's World Cup qualifiers. But this is a landmark day. Costa Rica, Germany on Thursday. And not just Frappard with the whistle in the middle. Uh, She'll be uh, supported by uh, Noisa Back of Brazil and Karen Diaz Medina of Mexico Uh, and she's spoken before about what it feels like to be making history and she says she's just doing her job. Casey, they say that if you're a good referee, nobody notices you. They they don't even see you out there on the field, but it's really hard not to be noticed when you're making history and Stephanie Frappar (laughs) is absolutely doing that. It sure is. All right, Don Riddell, thanks very much for that report. We really appreciate it. Up next, new images of the latest volcanic eruption in Hawaii are coming in as the lava flows inches closer to a main highway. Wow, that is lava flowing from Hawaii's Mauna Loa volcano. It is edging ever closer to a major highway on Hawaii's Big Island. The U.S. Geological Survey says lava is now three, the lava is now 3.6 miles from the roadway. It's flowed nearly a mile since yesterday. The world's largest active volcano began erupting Sunday night for the first time since 1984. It is currently not a threat to communities that neighbor it, but officials warn of poor air quality that can be caused by the volcanic gas and ash. Wow, just unbelievable. I'm Casey Hunt, in for Jake Tapper. You can always tweet at me at Casey or tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with Alex Markbart in the Situation Room. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.